This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alex Hughes, staff writer at BBC Science Focus magazine. This week, we're talking about astropolitics. As space travel becomes more frequent and our occupation of outer space expands, Questions are now being raised over how space can be governed, what we should be doing out there, and what rules and regulations need to be put into place. I'm joined by Tim Marshall to discuss this topic. He's the author of the new book, The Future of Geography. In this episode, he explores everything from the laws and ethics of space, how we can get there, and even how we can generate more energy as a planet by utilising space. So as a society, we are, you know, we are very much firmly based on Earth right now with the very occasional trip outside of that border. Would you say we're approaching, I guess, a science fiction future where we as a whole society begin to break out into space and further? Yes. And in many ways, we have insofar as most countries have in one way or another. For the majority, it's just satellites, which are now as small as a Rubik's Cube, some of them, which has given access to space for so many countries. Uh, and I think it's in our consciousness that, you know, the, the, the degree of uh, integration between our economies and space and perhaps to a lesser extent our militaries in space so i think we're there uh, and it's only accelerating obviously we're not exactly going to you know up and move off the planet anytime soon but 
as we're hearing about, I guess, billionaires and people with the means to do so beginning to make these trips out into space, do you think we could start to see things like space tourism becoming a reality soon? And with that, I guess, concepts like space hotels and holiday plans and whatnot? I think there's a little wait for that. There's already been forms of space tourism, but we're talking a handful of people, of course. And, um, you know, the, the chosen ones, such as William Shatner from Star Trek, uh, Captain Kirk, getting getting a ride out. But it will happen. But I think, you know, we're, we're, we're at least a decade out from that. The, the acceleration is much more in the satellite world, the military world, and more than anything, seriously big private companies such as Elon Musk's, uh, but many others that perhaps most of us haven't heard of, are they going for the resources which are out there on the moon? Uh, and that's, I think, where the real action is. Space tourism, for most of us, is a dream or a nightmare, depending on, on your disposition. For me, it would be a dream. You touched on it a little bit there about, uh, I guess, the militarization of space or its use in military. Could you expand on that a little bit? There's a big difference between the previous space race and this one in that the previous space race between the Soviets and the Americans, I think the underlying rationale of it was to prove which culture, which society, which political system was superior to the other. And the way to do that was to land on the moon. And so that that underpinned the space race. Now, there was a military aspect to it as well and, and a science aspect to it, but that was the main rationale. Kennedy even pretty much spelt it out in a speech in 62 saying, you know, we need to win this race to persuade people that this fork in the road, the communist road you could go down or the democratic capitalist system you could go down, partially depends on, on who wins this race. Now, there is a military aspect to it. There is uh, who is the best tech country around, but primarily this is driven by commerce. This is exactly why the previous space race ended. After the Americans won, Nixon pulled the plug on, on the funding because he said, what's the point of just going back and going back and going back? There is a point now. And the point is to go and get the rare earth metals, the, 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 the precious materials such as lithium that we can mine on the moon. And that is a big driver. One down from that, there is the military aspect. I'm absolutely convinced that uh, in the not too distant future, satellites will be armed because the more that they are, well, they're already integral to our economies and to our defense systems. And you cannot fight a modern military war without them. And as there are, there is the ability to attack them now. Um, I think the 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 defence side of satellites will grow. So there's all that because you know when you look at how good they are at surveillance, for example, they are a key thing to attack. If you intend to do something on Earth, you better do something in space. Uh, simultaneously or just before. Final bit on the military, although there is so much more I could say. Another reason to have defensive things on them, uh, and I'm not advocating for this, I just think that it's inevitable, is that we don't have the laws that say your satellite must be X distance from my satellite because my satellite has got my nuclear early warning system on it and I don't like yours being so close. We don't have laws for that. Uh, so we need them, and uh, I, th I think we need them urgently.
So do you think that's the next step in this sort of process to... Well, sadly, no. I guess... Um, no? I think the discussion needs to be had and will be had and the debate will be there and there will be efforts for this. I'll give you an example of why it's so difficult by perhaps coming up with a strange analogy, which is the uh, Treaty about Antarctica. The Russians and the Americans argued for a very long time about a definition on Antarctica. The Russians said there should be no military in Antarctica, and the Americans argued for no aggressive military because they wanted to have uh, military scientists working there. And this was a huge bone of contention. So that sort of language will be difficult to iron out if we try to get modern space treaties because the ones we have are well out of date. And the best example is direct ascent attacks. Four countries have done this. This is China, India, Russia, and the US. Each have launched a ballistic missile from the Earth's surface and hit one of their own satellites in a test and destroyed one of their own satellites. Now, obviously, they're testing to see if they can destroy somebody else's satellites. Now, the Americans have said, let's have a multilateral moratorium on testing such weapons. But the Chinese and the Russians know that their ground forces are not up to the scratch of the American forces. However, where they do have parity is in the ability to knock out these crucial elements of modern warfare satellites. So the, they're not going to sign up to a moratorium on these things until they reach parity. So there's a good example of uh, how difficult it's going to be. Where I think it is possible is something called a space situational uh, awareness, uh, SSAs. I think that that's a conversation that is being had and could result in a treaty where everybody agrees that everybody tracks every bit of space debris, every single satellite, everything that's out there, tells everybody uh, about it, and and hopefully within that writes the rules about distance, how close one thing can be to another. I think that's possible, but I think that the, the arms race is also inevitable. You touched on it a little bit there. I think it it could be an interesting thing to go on to. When we when we talk about Earth, you know, we're broken up into regions of countries, democracies, all of these different parts of the world. How does this work then when you get into space? Who owns certain areas and how can you commercialise a space that never ends? Depends who you ask, doesn't it? Well, I mean, as you'll know from your science background, that there are two definitions of when space starts. One's at about 60 miles, the Kármán line, but another one is at 80 miles. And that is a problem because supposing I define it at 80 and you define it at 60, and then I decide to fly something 61 miles above your territory, is that your sovereign territory? No, but you might argue that it is. So it would be helpful to also get a, a globally agreed definition and, and also a definition of how high up, how horizontal is your sovereignty. These, these are murky areas, which of course weren't as important as they are now. I mean, th- this is discussion is as old as hot air balloons from vague memories. This isn't in the book, but from vague memory, I think the French were arguing about 150 years ago or 200 years ago that, that your sovereignty extended about three miles up, something like that. And we're still arguing about it. So that, that, that sort of thing needs much better defining. And also, once you've defined that, um, therefore, I can't complain if you're flying a satellite above my country at geo synchronous orbit which 
I assume, as you know, geosynchronous, hang a satellite there, and it goes around the Earth at the same speed as the Earth moves. Consequently, it's always above the same spot, which is very useful for a whole bunch of stuff. So we just need to define all this much better, get it all written down, and try to agree as much as we can so we can cooperate as much as we can. So I guess it's... uh it's essentially semantics right now, or it has been, and now we're trying to move into a world where it's actual agreed upon terms and in what is essentially a blank slate. Uh, I think, you know, we've established what the rules of Earth are. Now you have to somehow establish the rules of everything outside of Earth. Well, yeah, a lot of people in that world, in, the, in what's called the world of astropolitics, you know, above geopolitics, they point to um, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS. Because we do, not everybody has signed it, but most countries sign up to it, and it is regarded as the norms. You know, you you have 12 nautical miles of sovereignty, that's your waters, you have 200 miles of your EEZ, your exclusive economic zone. If I'm 200 miles from the other person's coastline, we'll have 100 miles each. You know, all these things are are agreed. And that's the sort of template that people want to put up into space. But we need to get there. And the Outer Space Treaty, which is the sort of norms and definitions, uh, is from 1967. And it's horribly out of date because, A, things like lasers weren't around then. Um, and most people have signed up to the idea that we won't have weapons of mass destruction in space. So, great, I won't put a nuclear weapon on my satellite. I've agreed not to. But there's nothing to say I can't put uh, a laser on my satellite. And if we did all agree not to do that, then... We could diminish the arms race. So, we, you know, we need a 21st century version of the Outer Space Treaty, I think. So when we're looking into space, how do you see, I guess, sovereignty working in space? Can, can anyone own anything? Theoretically not. Um, it, is, the, the, it, it is generally agreed that the cosmos is for the common good, for all of humanity, and you can't own any of it. And that's... Very good language, but of course it's language. Sometimes what is reality can be different. So there's already laws, um, for example, uh, if, you, if you invent something, on, if the Japanese invent something in the Japanese model of the International Space Station, it is as if it was invented in Japan. But it, things get a bit more loose the further out you go. One of the most interesting things I found about the Artemis Accords, which about thirty, about 23 countries have signed now, is that they all agree that if you've gone to the moon and you've spent a hell of a lot of money and investment in finding where the rare earth materials are and getting there and investing in the mining equipment, you can declare a safety zone into which nobody else can come because it wouldn't be safe because you're busy working there. So if a country that's not an Artemis country, and for example, Russia and China are not, they've been excluded deliberately because there are now factions which mirror the factions on Earth, you can't really say to them, well, look, it says in the Artemis Accords, because they're going to say, well, what's that got to do with us? You know, what are you going to do about it? So it's another uh, example of why we need new laws for the 21st century. I, I don't, I doubt that anybody will break that idea that you that you cannot own part of the moon or indeed part of space. 
people will hold on to that concept, but I think the realities will kick in when country X has planted its flag in a section of somewhere and built a base. You know, it'll just be considered, not their sovereign territory, just that's where they are. We won't go there. So it's more, I guess, less legality and more of a... uh an understanding between countries when it comes to that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and that's quite an important point because the, the, the norms do, do arise and it's usually the first people that get there and the way they behave and the parameters that they set. Um, and then if somebody else comes along and agrees with them, well, it, it doesn't take that long until these norms are sort of accepted as, in quotation marks, law. So it's very important to to get. It's another reason to try and get there first, and it's another reason why, to an extent, this 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 race, a gradual race but accelerating, to get to the moon, because again, ju- just as on uh, on Earth, when let's say the switch from coal to oil was happening, uh, a leading power is not going to say to itself, "Well, we we won't bother going for this new these new resources. We'll just let everybody else get it, and hopefully they'll." Um, They'll 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 talk to us. They'll sell us some. No, you're going to go and get that. Get go there and try and get it yourself. If we're to be honest about it, is it likely that it's going to be, I guess, someone like the US or China that is setting these uh, standards? The first countries to get there. The big three are China and Russia as a partnership with Russia as the junior partner, and the United States. And they are a long way apart. They don't talk to each other uh, at this level, partly because of Ukraine, partly because Congress has banned NASA from working with uh, China, something I think should be looked at carefully again. Uh, underneath that, within the American umbrella, you do have about another 20-odd countries that agree with America's view on all this. So it, it is who gets there and establishes the norms. The big three will lead the way. And just as they have uh, people that cooperate with them down here, there will be states that cooperate with them there. I hate to make the reference because I'm sure it's not something you're going to appreciate, but is there a risk of a Star Wars type world of where we're fighting outside in space, not so much weapons of mass destruction hitting Earth? Yes, no, no, there, there really is, and, and also, as you know, Star Wars was the shorthand for Reagan's uh, version of that, which they were going to do in the in the nineteen eighties, but uh, stopped for a whole bunch of reasons, including the tensions it would have caused with with uh, the Soviets and, and the problems with uh, the different arms agreements. But we are heading that way. I'll give you two examples. Uh, well, three. One is the one I've already mentioned: the ASATs, the Direct Ascent Attacks on satellites from ballistic missiles fired from Earth. Secondly, and this is now, not the future, as I said, I believe the satellites will be armed and it won't be too long in the future. The Russians have already tested a satellite which opened, some aperture opened. It fired something, and no one's quite sure what, at another one of its satellites. Now, um, the important thing here is it was space to space. It wasn't Earth to space or space to Earth. It was space to space. They fired something. So that genie is just about out of the bottle. Direct energy weapons, and at the moment they have a range of about 
max, say, a mile. Uh, several countries have tested these. For example, the Americans have fired a direct energy beam at a drone a few hundred metres up in the air and destroyed it. And when you think that the electricity in that shot costs a few dollars, as opposed to spending $200,000 on a missile to hit that, you can see the direction of, of travel. So given that we've got that tech and that the Russians have tested something, it's not a great leap to put those things on the satellites, and then it's not a great leap to see them firing at each other. It doesn't have to happen. I'm just saying that it is now possible. The stage of beyond that, though, then, I mean, you know, I'm not a scientific background and I struggle sometimes with this, but my understanding of physics is that most of the sci-fi movies you see couldn't really happen. You can't have space planes doing a barrel roll um, and and firing uh, photon torpedoes. But the Americans and the Chinese already have a space plane. Not much is known about the Chinese, but the American one has been up at least once. It's, it's a robotic plane, no crew in it. Uh, it looks a little bit like the shuttle, and it spent about a year and a half out there in space. No one's quite sure what it was doing out there. So again, you know, we are on... We are on that route. I hasten to add, this is not all doom, gloom, and war. There's an awful lot of good stuff going on with, with science and cooperation as well. Yeah, I think quite happy to take it away from war by asking um, a lot of recent research has been done into essentially how we can live outside of our own boundaries, you know, what we can plant, what can grow, how we can get oxygen. And I think, as we're well aware from lots of different billionaires talking about it there is this conversation about us moving um our civilizations out to mars or to the moon one of the questions that i think doesn't get brought up enough is how do you get construction parts out there and how do you find water and energy sources and how do you get huge portions of people out there Moon, Moon's the best example of this. And again, this isn't too far away. As you know, the Artemis Accord countries, led by the States, intend to have a man and a woman walking on the surface of the Moon. Uh, they said 2025. It looks like it'll slip to 2026 now. And they also say a Moon base, 2032. So again, add a few years on. Ditto the Chinese and Russians. They're also heading for early 2030s for a Moon base. So how on earth do you do that? slowly and <laughs> you build out but there is water now the indians have proved it and the indian probe has proved it there's millions of gallons of water ice notably at the south pole near the shackleton crater region and from water you can get oxygen so that is a work in progress um, mining it is also a work in progress. The Japanese are doing some amazing work on building mining equipment for both asteroids and the surface of the moon, and everybody's working on, on this stuff. So you get there. first thing, obviously, you need is oxygen. You can get that from uh, the water. You can get, obviously, water from the water. Hydrogen you can get from water to make some fuel. Building your shelter... There's two versions. There are many, many caves, also near the South Pole. And if you're in the caves, and they are also much more temperate, they don't have the extremes of temperature that you get on the surface, you're protected from the radiation. This is all theory, of course. Whilst you're living there, you are 3D printing permanent habitation. 
And it's a lot cheaper to uh, have the uh, non-crewed machines that can go out there, land with lots of equipment, and then you 3D print the stuff that you haven't got. And these are all, you know, this is on the drawing board. This is intended to be happening over the next few years. This isn't some sort of uh, wish list. Now, if you want to go on to Mars and stuff, I think that's a lot further out, both both literally and time-wise. Talking about... Uh, satellites are being blown up or you know, uh, any kind of exploration outside of space, there is, as I'm sure you know, a huge issue with the amount of space junk that's left behind. And that's begun to make travel outside of our own realms somewhat difficult. Is this, would you say, a problem that would need to first be addressed before we can start looking at these long-form trips? And our no, I think it's simultaneous Earth? because because near-Earth orbit, uh, it, yes, it's getting busy, but it's a huge, huge area. You know, obviously, obviously the further uh, outside of the atmosphere you are, the uh, the volume, the area of space in an orbit uh, grows bigger and bigger and bigger. So there is a lot of space still out there, even in low Earth orbit, to to fill because it goes on for mile after mile. Uh, but I think Musk Musk is uh, on record as saying I think about tw- another twenty thousand SpaceX satellites, small satellites, he intends to launch over the next few years, and the Chinese are launching them as fast as they can, and many other countries also. Nigeria now makes its own satellites, uh, cube satellites, size of a Rubik's cube because the costs of getting them out there have gone down so much. So, yes, it, it is a long-term problem. The space debris is a long-term problem. And what I came across in the research for the book was if there is one subject that everybody agrees on and everyone agrees really needs to be tackled, it is space debris. And everybody is aware of this thing called the Kessler syndrome, named after an, an American scientist who just had the scenario of one satellite crashes into another, the debris goes around at 300,000 miles an hour, whatever, it crashes into another, and then another, and then another. And at some point, you have what I assume would be called the Kessler belt of sharp pieces of metal flying around at thousands of miles an hour, which you can't get through, in which case we are grounded. So everyone agrees, and it's a massive, massive investment is going in in all sorts of countries, the Japanese in particular. And already there are satellites that can have grappling arms on them that can get hold of a satellite that's defunct and throw it into the atmosphere so it burns up so that it's not in the way of another one and creating more space debris. So it is a work in progress as we speak, but I don't think it, it 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 will get in the way at the moment of the exploration aspect of space. Very, very different note. I, I think anytime there's innovation, you also see commercialism following close behind. Do you think we'll see things like advertising in space, uh, sports in space, all that sort of stuff? Well, I do half-jokingly say there'll be a museum on space built above Armstrong's, um, on the moon, Armstrong's footprint. You know, it'll be, um, it'll be akin to um, um, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but just not religious. Or, uh, or that, there's a place in Bethlehem where you put your hand on this star that's in the crypt of the, of the church in Bethlehem where allegedly Jesus was born. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's, that's just the fun stuff. Yes, there are, there, there's somebody, of course, in America who's come up with the idea of a constellation of satellites that will fly in formation and spell out the names of major companies in, in, in the low Earth orbit. I cannot 
see, I hope, countries agreeing with that. And certainly, I do not think the publics of the world will will take take kindly to that. I find that one of the most depressing things possible. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen. But there are people talking about it. On a, I guess, more positive note, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the theory of Kardashev scale, but about the uh, energy consumption that a civilization can produce. I guess one thing that our exploration outside of Earth could bring is a higher level of energy consumption um, through, you know, very much theoretical ideas like Dyson spheres or the use of satellites. Do you think this is something that would be one of the first sort of things that gets explored as we um, push past this boundary? Well, again, they, they already are. I mean, um, the Dyson sphere, for example, the um, Bezos, Jeff Bezos's company and Blue Horizons. Musk is far more short-term ambitious, and I, I think um, it's impossible, Musk's ideas. He, he said a million people on Mars by 2050. I, I, it's inconceivable. But Bezos is, is, is saying we will be out there in floating cities. Uh, there are even some of the Lagrange points, um, like L5, between the sun and the, and the earth, where you could build a space city and it, would, it could hang there for various reasons to do with gravity. He, he says, look, I know this won't happen for a couple of hundred years, but I also know that it will happen. And he is designing things and putting things into place that can be built on for the future. And because he's starting now, you know, he says, there's no point in us suddenly trying to invent stuff in 200 years. We're going to start now, even if we're not going to see it. It's the old thing about planting a tree that, you know, you won't sit in the shade, but your grandchildren will. So that, that sort of stuff's going on. And there's all sorts of theoretical stuff. And there's a line in the, I wrote in the book about, I, I don't think we should be constrained in our imagination. And again, this is the fun bit, you know, I mean, the book essentially is about astropolitics and international relations. But there's room in there to explore lots of fun stuff. And I, I say that I don't think we, be, we should be constrained, even by science, when it comes to our imagination in what what might come. And there's a great quote by, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke, the, the sci-fi writer, who said something along the lines of, um, we, we can have as about as much conception of what there will be in the distant future as a fish can understand electricity. Uh, and, and I think that's true. For example, if you'd have told someone three or 400 years ago that there's these weird waves, they're invisible, but they're in the air. And if you put your voice near to one of them, somebody 10,000 miles away can hear you. They'd think you were utterly mad. But that's the sort of imagination that we need to have. And we should not be constrained, even by the idea that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Because the quantum world is challenging Einstein on that, as I understand it. So we've spoken about there's stuff happening now. There's stuff that could happen in hundreds and hundreds of years. What do you think, if you were to, I guess, paint a picture, what is the the next step of astropolitics? What do we see happening? Okay, short term, even more satellites going out there, which uh, is problematic in one way, but also incredibly helpful for humanity in looking at climate change, looking at where to grow crops, looking at uh, coming pestilence or, on certain regional areas that we can planned for, looking the other direction, looking out for the uh, asteroids which um, could harm us. And all this sort of stuff is happening right now. Amazing medical experiments are going on, which again will help humanity. We're getting closer and closer to being able to put fields of uh, solar panels in space, 
to reflect 24-7, because there's no day and night, solar energy down to Earth. And so even when it's dark, the solar fields collecting the energy on Earth can still transfer it to the grid. So we don't need the batteries, because at the moment, as you know, the you know, we, we, we're struggling with, with the battery power to, to maintain, uh, to keep the, the solar energy. So I think all that, that's in the very near future, I think. The timeline of Artemis and the Chinese, well, Artemis is a man and a woman on the moon 2026 now, followed every year by more, moon base by the early 2030s. And I think these, these things are probable. Once you get past that, I'm afraid you are just into the fun stuff. But once we are established on the moon within a decade, attention will then turn to using it as a launch pad for Mars. And I'd be surprised if we're not not on Mars by 2040. A million people by 2050? No. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Tim Marshall talking about astropolitics. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can come and find us online at sciencefocus.com.